Chapter 41 of White Jacket or The World in a Man of War. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White. White Jacket or The World in a Man of War by Herman Melville. Chapter 41 A Man of War Library. Nowhere does time pass more heavily than with most men-of-war's men on board their craft in harbor. One of my principal antidotes against ennui in Rio was reading. There was a public library on board, paid for by government, and entrusted to the custody of one of the marine corporals, a little dried-up man of a somewhat literary turn. He had once been a clerk in a post-office ashore, and, having been long accustomed to hand over letters when called for, he was now just the man to hand over books. He kept them in a large cask on the berth deck, and, when seeking a particular volume, had to capsize it like a barrel of potatoes. This made him very cross and irritable, as most all librarians are. Who had the selection of these books, I do not know, but some of them must have been selected by our chaplain, who so pranced on Coleridge's high German horse. Mason Good's Book of Nature, a very good book, to be sure, but not precisely adapted to Terry tastes, was one of these volumes. And Machiavel's Art of War, which was very dry fighting, and a folio of Tillotson's sermons, the best of reading for divines, indeed, but with little relish for a main-topman. And Locke's essays, incomparable essays, everybody knows, but miserable reading at sea. And Plutarch's lives, super-excellent biographies, which pit Greek against Roman in beautiful style. But then, in a sailor's estimation, not to be mentioned with The Lives of the Admirals, and Blair's Lectures, University Edition, a fine treatise on rhetoric, but having nothing to say about nautical phrases such as splicing the main brace, passing a gammoning, puttinging the dolphin, and making a carrack bend, besides numerous and valuable but unreadable tomes that might have been purchased cheap at the auction of some college professor's library. But I found ample entertainment in a few choice old authors, whom I stumbled upon in various parts of the ship among the inferior officers. One was Morgan's History of Algiers, a famous old quarto, abounding in picturesque narratives of corsairs, captives, dungeons, and sea fights, and making mention of a cruel old day who, toward the latter part of his life, was so filled with remorse for his cruelties and crimes that he could not stay in bed after four o'clock in the morning, but had to rise in great trepidation and walk off his bad feelings till breakfast-time. And another venerable octavo, containing a certificate from Sir Christopher Wren to its authenticity, entitled Knox's Captivity in Ceylon, 1681, abounding in stories about the devil, who was superstitiously supposed to tyrannize over that unfortunate land. To mollify him, the priests offered up buttermilk, redcocks, and sausages, and the devil ran roaring about in the woods, frightening travelers out of their wits. 
insomuch that the islanders bitterly lamented to Knox that their country was full of devils, and consequently there was no hope for their eventual well-being. Knox swears that he himself heard the devil roar, though he did not see his horns. It was a terrible noise, he says, like the baying of a hungry mastiff. Then there was Walpole's letters, very witty, pert, and polite, and some odd volumes of plays, each of which was a precious casket of jewels of good things, shaming the trash nowadays passed off for dramas, containing the Jew of Malta, Old Fortunatus, the City Madam, Volpone, the Alchemist, and other glorious old dramas of the age of Marlowe and Johnson, and that literary Damon and Pythias, the magnificent, mellow old Beaumont and Fletcher, who have sent the long shadow of their reputation side by side with Shakespeare's, far down the endless vale of posterity. And may that shadow never be less. But as for St. Shakespeare, may his never be more, lest the commentators arise, and settling upon his sacred text like unto locusts, devour it clean up, leaving never a dot over an eye. I diversified this reading of mine by borrowing Moore's Loves of the Angels from Rosewater, who recommended it as the charmingest of volumes, and a negro songbook containing Sittin' on a Rail, Gumbo Squash, and Jim Along Josie from Broadbit, a street anchor man. The sad taste of this old tar in admiring such vulgar stuff was much denounced by Rosewater, whose own predilections were of a more elegant nature as evinced by his exalted opinion of the literary merits of the loves of the angels. I was by no means the only reader of books on board the Neversink. Several other sailors were diligent readers, though their studies did not lie in the way of Bell's letters. Their favorite authors were such as you may find at the bookstalls around Fulton Market. They were slightly physiological in their nature. My book experiences on board of the frigate proved an example of a fact which every book lover must have experienced before me, namely that though public libraries have an imposing air and doubtless contain invaluable volumes, yet somehow the books that prove most agreeable, grateful, and companionable are those we pick up by chance here and there, those which seem put into our hands by providence, those which pretend to little but abound in much. End of chapter 41 Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista